This is Bunga Cast. My name is Alex Hochuli. This podcast is also George Hora and Philip Cunliffe. Hello, boys. Hey, what's up? Yeah, hey. Oh, well done. You got that this time. Well done, George. Um, yeah, we... I, I fluffed my lines last time. De- Hello. De- <laughs> Just read check notes. Hello. De- deceptively complicated uh, role to play there. But uh, anyway, um, this is BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. We're recording this on Friday, the 25th of November. We are discussing techno-feudalism today, a thesis that's been widely bandied about as a way of explaining certain phenomena in contemporary capitalism. You know, whether it's like growing inequality, uh, the rise of tech barons, um, the increasing rent-seeking or financialization of the economy, and so on various other phenomena that you can think of. Um, You've probably come across this term before. And for that reason, uh, we have a thing called a reading club where uh, for patrons who pay $10 a month, they get access to uh, this club where we have been exploring different themes over the course of the year. One of these is techno-feudalism. So we've got several readings ongoing now at the moment until the end of the year, looking in depth from various different angles, from the question of labor to technology uh, to kind of broader synthetic arguments about what capitalism is like today in that section on techno-feudalism. This isn't the reading club, though. Um, This is uh, an exploration of an article by Evgeny Morozov, uh, which is a critique of the techno-feudal thesis, which we're going to be discussing. But I just wanted to say that if you uh, enjoy what you're about to hear, find this interesting and want to learn more, uh, I would suggest maybe uh, checking out the reading club. We also have local reading clubs uh, in various cities around the world uh, where people get together to discuss the material uh, and send in questions, which we, we then discuss on the episodes. But of course, if, if you're a late joiner, you're not part of it yet, um, you know, you can still join and follow along, do the readings and or even not do the readings, because I think uh, the episodes are accessible, even if you haven't, um, you know, done a close reading of the text that um, we have put together in this uh, syllabus for 2022. Um, so we hope you uh, join us, uh, whether now or for next year's reading club. Anyway, that's all to check out. It's at patreon.com slash bungacast. Now, um, as to the content, the more interesting stuff, I'm going to hand over to George, who's been uh, manning the techno-feudal thesis section of the uh, 2022 reading club. Yes, I have indeed been manning that section of the uh, reading club um, syllabus. And yeah, so this um, reading for today, Evgeny Morozov's critique of techno-feudal reason, which was in New Left Review, in January uh, to April 2022 came out after we um, set the syllabus up. So didn't have a chance to include it, but it's on a lot of the key issues and, and questions in that <clears throat> final part of the reading club syllabus on, on techno-feudalism. And it's, I think it's particularly useful because it is a really, you know, it's a, an overview of all the different approaches that you have to these different sorts of techno-feudalism, digital feudalism, information feudalism, Kotkin's um, version of this specifically neo-feudalism and I'll just outline what he says in, in his book in a, in a second but uh, this is you know one of the most useful things of the article is it, it takes all of these things and Murazov also sees a smart feudalism on the horizon and it kind of lays out some of the theoretical um, background <clears throat> and assumptions um, but yeah just to link it back to that uh, part of the the reading club we discussed uh, 
Joel Kotkin's The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class. And just to recap that, because I think it's useful if, um, you know, if listeners haven't read some of the pieces that we're discussing, this um, Kotkin can stand in for, you know, some of the general claims that techno-feudalists tend to make. So who is Joel Kotkin? He's a um, con- often thought of as conservative geographer, but we disagree. Well, at least one of us disagreed with this characterization of conservative in the, on the Reading Club, uh, based in Orange County in California. A lot of his previous work is about, I guess, the, the the Californian dream and how this state, which previously represented, you know, it was the golden state. It was where you could go and find your fortune. And then it was in the 60s. It had weather, wine, weed. It was this great place to be. And now it has, I think, if anything, a kind of a dystopian uh, connotation you know, failing power grid, uh, permanently gridlocked I-55, um, you know, the tech uh, overlords um, ruling over California and and a, a kind of uh, a really uh, dysfunctional um, social kind of place to be. Um, but yeah, so that's Joel Kotkin. His book, The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, which came out in 2020, is, um, yeah, as the, the subtitle says, a, a warning to the global middle class and what he's trying to do in that book is to say there's a change in society, I think extrapolating from California to the rest of the world, and it's a return. Well, neo-feudalism kind of leaves it a bit open, but certainly it has a lot of characteristics of feudalism, the you know, the economic and social system that predated capitalism. Particularly, this is Kotkin's argument, it has a specific class structure, which is different to labor and capital under capitalism. Instead, you have the aristocracy, the clerisy, and then the third estate, which is made up of the yeomanry and the serfs. And I think the kind of political thrust of the book is that you have a symbiosis between the economic oligarchy and the clerisy, and this is the major threat to the middle class. So in Californian terms, that's the the tech oligarchs and the clerisy. So the the kind of, you might call them the PMC, you might call them the kind of uh, word spinners or the, the ideological producers or various other things, but I'm sure we'll get into all of this over the course of this episode. He also says that this neo-feudal society is one which has a set of obligations and a really ingrained orthodoxy. So it's an ordered society with a very fixed set of ideas. He particularly takes aim at environmentalism and, and some good passages on green indulgences, as he puts it. Um, he also says that this, in terms of the ideas of this society, very culturally pessimistic, declining faith in democracy. This neo-feudal society is also characterized by um, a concentration of wealth, a decline in upward mobility. You know, it's a very static society. He characterizes populism as peasant rebellions, um, but this, you know, it's a very fixed, ordered. You know, this is the, the idea of feudalism is supposed to capture a lot of this um, sort of society, and it also has its geographical aspects. It has a, you know, all these gated cities. Um, you know, Christoph Gies. We talked about this a bit in the, the Reading Club, and we've talked about Christoph Gies before on this podcast. This idea of citadels. And these superstar cities, which are celebrated against other examples of uh, kind of more suburban ways of living, which I think Kotkin would defend. And he cites Milton Keynes for British listeners as an example of this. And just to summarize all of this, um, and I read this out on the Reading Club episode as well, because I think it's just a good summary of of what this neo-feudal thesis is supposed to, I guess, capture or supposed to evoke in the, the reader's mind. The new feudalism won't feature intrepid knights in armor or fortified castles or race soaring cathedrals filled with liturgical chants. 
Instead, it will boast dazzling new technology and be wrapped in a creed of globalism and environmentalist piety. Yet for all its modernity, the coming age seeks to replace liberal dynamism and intellectual pluralism with an orthodoxy that puts a premium on stasis and accepts social hierarchy as the natural order of things. So we already discussed um, Kotkin and before in, in the, on the Reading Club, but before we get on to um, Morozov's idea, like critique of all the different sorts of techno-feudalism, um, any reflections on our discussion previously on Kotkin? Well, I think it's um, worth saying that all of what you've just been describing and what Kotkin describes and you know other similar authors have also um, tried to capture are things that are intuitively understandable, I think. We all... Um, kind of looking around at the contemporary global scene um, or wherever, you know, in the society that you're in, I think a lot of this stuff um, is um, immediately felt. You know that there's this growing inequality. You know that um, the world that we knew is falling apart. And so I think everybody's struggling to um, try to put a label on on <laughs> kind of what's going on in the transformations in um, in global capitalism. Um, you know, we ourselves call it the end of the end of history, right? And I guess the, the neo-feudal thing is has a certain appeal because it says, no, there's something even deeper going on. You know, there's something kind of almost a kind of mega or meta historical transformation going on that we're, it's somehow um, capitalism itself is ending and being, and becoming something else. Yeah. Phil. Yeah. I was a big fan of the book. I mean, I don't, I don't agree with the neo-feudalism as a thesis, but I thought Kotkin's book was, um, you know, it's a very good read. Um, it was very kind of insightful. Um, he assembles the material well. And on top of that, it was useful to argue against. You know, I think he set up the kind of the case for um set up the case for neo-feudalism in a way that thinking about the claims about changed class structure, um I indulgences, kind of urban versus uh, rural, all of these things. It was a it's a useful way to think about contemporary social change so even you know even though you might disagree with it as i do um you know i think it's a great read and so um it was great to do in the reading club yeah i think re reflecting on it it's it, it's that sense of stagnation or like there's no forward motion to like contemporary capitalism and so it makes you know there are different ways that you can account for this and describe it but it certainly is a sort of starting point for me, at least. I think it, you know, it gives it gives a bit of an impulse to that, like to talking about neo feudalism or techno feudalism or, or whatever, because there does seem to be a backward uh, facing or a kind of st stagnation decay like vibe, if you want to put it that way, at the moment. Yeah, and the the other elements, I think, also the clerisy, the idea, this revived idea of um, profoundly kind of orthodox and dogmatic ideologues that provide um you know that provide justification and legitimation for the social structure in terms that lend themselves to kind of inquisitorial style persecutions accusations of heresy and so on you know that i think you know people would recognize that but also the fact that rebellion has the feel of peasants with pitchforks and torches you know, yeah. that it's kind of, it doesn't yeah. seem to go anywhere. It seems to kind of just um, disrupt and shake things up and then produce kind of, um, you know, kind of everyone tightens, um, you know, battens down the hatches and tightens the screws even further. But nothing seems to come of the of the peasant rebellions, which, you know, in the form of kind of populist insurrections of the ballot box. Yeah. So there are many things to commend, you know, 
at least superficially, there are many things to commend the thesis. Uh, when you kind of go a bit deeper, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really hold up. And that's what we try to get into a bit in the reading club. Yeah, I think this discussion can can continue some of that because Morozov's analysis is very much on what are the, some of the deep assumptions and I guess uh, starting points on what capitalism is and what feudalism is, which underlie the you know neo feudal or techno uh, feudal theses. So if if um, Joel Kotkin is a think, thinker that Morozov puts on on the right, there are also a number of quite a few um, thinkers on the left, probably more that um, Morozov analyzes to a greater or lesser extent or at least kind of lists as examples of, of um, different variants of this techno feudal thesis and these include but are not uh, not limited to um it's going to c- come across a bit like a, a list of names unless i actually explain what what some of these people do or who they are but feel free to jump in guys with a bit more clarification so yanis varifakis has um written on techno feudalism uh mariana mazakatsu um she is uh a kind of political economist in in the in the UK, and she's written a lot on moonshots and um, various industrial kind of, pol- re- reviving industrial policy, basically yeah. in the developed world. How to have an entrepreneurial state and in, in innovation. So she's clearly interested in that sort of thing, and sees you know feudalism as or drawing analogies between contemporary society and feudalism as useful. Uh, Jody Dean, who we mentioned on the Reading Club as well, who's a um, an American theorist who's criticized some of the, um, I guess she's more probably critical of, of some of the techno-feudal uh, theses. Wolfgang Strake um, gets a mention as well, who's been a previous guest on this podcast. And somebody who gets quite a lot of uh, time in the essay is Robert Brenner, who's a Marxist historian. Um, and in different ways, and I'm sure we'll draw this out a little bit, Morozov sees some of the, the things which they say or, or some of the accounts that they have of a few aspects of contemporary society as having one or more of the key assumptions that we're kind of gonna gonna go through. Anybody that I that I missed? No, I think that that you know that's a good summation. I think it's worth pointing out that yeah, these um, theorists you know span a range from kind of center left, effectively liberals of some sort, all the way to uh, Marxist far left or people who identify explicitly as communists in the case of Jody Dean. So um, it's obviously something which. Uh, is a thesis which lots of people have tried to grapple with or use, um, despite coming from different kind of theoretical and political backgrounds. Yeah, and I think um, Morozov does say that, to, to their credit, none of them go so far as to claim that capitalism is, so I'm reading a quote here, go so far as to claim that capitalism is completely extinct or that we're back in the Middle Ages. The more careful of them, like Brenner, suggests that features of the current capitalist system prolonged stagnation, politically driven upward distribution of wealth, ostentatious consumption by elites combined with increasing immiseration of the masses, recall aspects of its feudal predecessor, even if capitalism is still very much, sorry, even if capitalism still very much rules today. So just in terms of like some of the the concrete issues that these thinkers um, um, highlight to kind of add some plausibility to a, a, a feudal thesis or uh, whatever qualifier feudal thesis um you have things like the perverse macroeconomic effects of quantitative easing and this is Varifakis's account unearned income generated by tech platforms Mazakatsu, but lots of other people as well whether google and amazon are capitalists or as brett christopher suggests rentiers whether capitalism is extractivist today rather than productive um the how we should theorize the digital economy and the difficulties of doing so and I think the overall conclusion, I want to throw it over to you guys, is that of Morozov's conclusion is that the popularity of feudal speak 
maybe I should have been introducing all the different feudal theses as feudal speak. That's a good phrase. Um, so the popularity of feudal speak is a testament to intellectual weakness rather than media savviness. It is as if the left theoretical framework can no longer make sense of capitalism without mobilizing the moral language of corruption and perversion. What do you guys think? Is this the is is a uh, feudal speak um, <clears throat> the sign of a a weakened and degenerated mind? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot to unpack there, but I agree effectively. Um, I think one there is the kind of mediatized aspect that uh, techno feudalism, neo feudalism, whatever is a sexy title, and so Morozov even um, charges a lot of these authors with writing about what they would write about anyway, um, talking about, for example, uh, the effects of quantitative easing, and just trying to package it all up by calling it neo-feudal um, without a real deep examination of the full implications of what that means. Um, so it's a kind of, yeah, it's trying to make it sexy. But as he points out, it's not just an attempt at media savviness. Uh, it's an, It really reflects the fact that people aren't able to think nowadays about what capitalism really is, at least according to... Uh, you know, kind of traditional Marxian understanding, um, and so have to rely on um, things which, I mean, according to Marx, we'll, we'll come in, we'll come, we'll, we'll come in, come along to discuss um, in detail. You know, to what extent this is true, but you know, for Marx, effectively, the, it is an economic logic which drives capitalism, and that these extraneous things like corruption um, or perversion or whatever, or, or some sort of perversion of that economic logic um, are, are extraneous to it. And, and you don't need those to explain capitalism, you know, and there's always a, there's a political point to this, right? That if you're relying on, if your critique is a critique of corruption, there's a sort of moral component to that. And which also um, implies that if you got rid of that corruption, then capitalism would be okay effectively. So yeah. <laughs> um, the the real radical critique, I guess, and this is what Morozov is driving at, is to um, really get to the to the root of, of, of the matter of how capitalism works, even, even according to its best um, possible um, formulation. Yeah, no, I, would, I mean, go on, Phil. Yeah, go on, George. Well, well I was just going to, I mean, I was going to kind of um, build on what Alex said, but um, I suppose I would, you know, I'd see this point as cutting two ways. On the one hand, I think it, you know, it speaks to a certain um, a certain naivety about what, you know, if you if you wish to characterize capital, you know, modern what's happening today as neo feudalism, it speaks to a certain naivety about capitalism itself, right? Um, you know, which imagines it as uh, kind of as as if it only belongs to a particular era, and that if it changes in any particular direction, it's no longer meaningfully capitalism, and that seems to me to kind of underestimate capitalism as a type of society, um, but also to perversely idealize it, right? To kind of restrict it to a very particular um, era and then to think that any deviation from that era means that capitalism is over. When it seems to me that many of the kinds of things that, you know, that you just described, um, the kind of unearned income, perverse macroeconomic effects, extractivism, uh, rentierism, all of these things are very much um, phenomena of um, industrial capitalism in the sense of um, the enormous kind of wealth that it produces that can't be effectively, um, you know, effectively channeled. And that it generates these enormous um, inequalities of income and, you know, de facto kind of parasitism as all these uh, increasingly kind of superfluous social strata try to get hold of these uh, revenue streams, essentially, from this underlying kind of industrial 
industrial base or um, from the underlying forces of production that are so tremendously um uh, you know powerful in what they yield in economic terms that it generates all these kinds of perverse outcomes so mm-hmm. um that would be my kind of my um my rough take on it yeah and just i mean i th- go on well i just to add something I, I which i think is useful to set this up in a in a broader sense is the way that morozov starts this off by noting that neo-feudalism also allows people to think beyond capitalism, which was supposedly something that, um, according to Frederick Jemison, was something that we were unable to do anymore. Um, You know, it was easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Now you can imagine the end of capitalism, but only on condition that it's a dystopian outcome, that 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 we return to feudalism rather than move forward to communism or some form of freer society. It's worth saying, I mean, as against, you know, kind of somewhat, I mean, these are not, you know, Varoufakis in particular. Um, you know, these are not people I'm generally or Jody Dean. These are not a kind of theorists that I'm especially sympathetic to. But to say to defend them against uh, Morozov, I would say, um, you know, uh, what they are, you know, they are, they are trying to deal with a genuine um, question, which is um, the nature of capitalist society and the absence of. Um, the challenge posed to it by organized labor, right? So the kind of the underlying question, which Morozov, I don't think he ever really draws out, though he maybe gestures at it or um, it's kind of implied, is what is, you know, how do you account for capitalism in the absence of um, the challenge posed to capital by organized labor? And, you know, that is not, it's not a straightforward proposition. So, you know, they are, I mean, you know, to that extent, they're trying to kind of formulate these terms. And obviously, it's somewhat ramshackle and qualified and caveated with the techno kind of suffix or the neo suffix and all of this, you know, but that is, you know, at the end of the day, I think that is what they're trying to grapple with. Capitalism without a meaningful kind of um, either political or economic challenge. Yeah, I mean, just to link it quickly back to this, uh, to our our end of end of history idea, you could even say that, you know, the end of history, to draw on that Jameson quote, you couldn't imagine an alternative to capitalism. But now you have the end of the end of history, so the negation of of that, but without anything positive. So you can imagine the end of capitalism, but it has to be a regressive one. It has to go back into the past. And so that's why why feudalism is, um, or neo-feudalism is imaginatively possible. And of course, there are material reasons and changes which um, make it plausible um, and these I'm sure we'll come on to discuss um, but yeah so feudalism to start with uh, obviously kind of an important concept to uh, neo-feudal or techno-feudal theses um, and just to the yeah, just on um, outline this a little bit because I think it's quite a <clears throat> you know quite a, it's not necessarily a complex but quite a theoretical argument that Morozov starts with here so he sees that basically the um the Marxist tradition has tried to identify an economic logic um, of feudalism, and he sees it as something like the following. So the peasants present, uh, possess their own means of production, so tools and livestock and so on, and also had access to common land. Um, and so they did have some degree of autonomy from the feudal lords in, in producing their subsistence. Um, don't have that today. Uh, feudal lords, on the other hand, had few incentives to raise peasants' productivity, and so they basically intervened relatively little in this um, production process. Any surplus that was produced by the peasants was openly appropriated from them by the landlords, usually by appeal to tradition or law, and through. And this is basically enforced through threats of 
um, violence and and all sorts of like coercive means. So kind of the, you know, just to summarize this, then that the economic logic of feudalism was peasants had autonomy in matters of production, but little overall autonomy and landlords for their part had little incentive to um, uh, to increase productivity. So it's quite, a, a, you know, that's a picture of stasis that we talked about with with um, Kotkin just, just a few minutes ago. And that's um, Morozov leads Morozov to conclude that Marxists basically therefore tended to um, see the means of surplus extraction under feudalism as political rather than economic, since they didn't ar arise from the free conditions of contracting, you know, normally free agents like all of us um, under capitalism being free in heavily inverted commas to sell our, our labor power. Um, and that, that's what pertains under capitalism. But under feudalism, it's not. It's violence is the thing that gets the surplus from the producers. So a bit of a whistle stop, uh, very heavily summarized uh, <laughs> kind of uh, idea of the logic of a uh, a sort of society which persisted over many centuries in human history. Um, but is Morozov right in this kind of uh, laying out of, you know, Marxist approaches to feudalism and are the Marxists right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's, uh, you know, your summation is good. And, and more, what Morozov argues, I think, is, um, you know, fairly uncontestable, um, at least, you know, from within the Marxist tradition. Um, you know, the peasants went and produced what they produced, and then the Lord came in and stole a bunch of it and that stealing aspect or you know the sense that it's not a kind of equal exchange is important and then this this kind of um notion reappears in the whole language of you know feudal talk today um as morozov puts it you know in, in terms of plunder uh predation or expropriation right so these are all ways of um effectively to put in the crudest possible terms of, of stealing, right, of taking something um, from people illegitimately, which is different to the way capitalism supposedly works, where, um, and which many um, non-Marxists, and actually many Marxists sometimes um, misunderstand, which is that under capitalism, under market exchange, um, the, the exchange is equal. You get paid for the work that you've done. It's legitimate. There's not, sometimes, you know, bosses steal from workers, sure. But the main way that it works is that you get paid for your labor. It's a fair exchange. Um, that 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 doesn't mean there isn't exploitation, but the exploitation happens within that fair exchange. And so I think Morozov is right in trying to reduce this basically down to the question of whether it things work according to this purely economic logic or whether there's a political logic, whether there's a question of power um, that comes in in terms of uh, and then violence and so on um, in terms of uh, distributing who gets what. Yeah, no, I think, uh, Phil, uh, are the Marxists right, though? Was feudalism bad? for that reason well i suppose two things in answer to your question george there there is a kind of if you look at some old um uh commenter or early soviet posters uh there is the tendency to portray kind of the progression from feudalism to capitalism to socialism as um as a kind of um ratcheting upwards in human history and that's not clear to me that that is in you know that that is the way in which uh, marx and engels themselves understood it in the classical formulations of the theory of historical materialism um so i mean that's a kind of a one point about kind of how you understand historical change and whether you think of it as this ratcheting effect you know with um great you know improve improvements in the underlying kind of economic structure whether it's useful to think in those terms or whether it's simply the fact that one era unfolds into another you know and that's a, a more basic question the the 
one thing I would qualify though is, you know, uh, the way in which feudalism, I mean, it's a small point, but the feudalism is often used, particularly when it comes to kind of, um, you know, when it's talk, spoken about in the global level, it's used as a synonym for kind of rural backwardness. When in the, again, kind of in the classical canon, it's understood as something which is very specifically restricted to Europe, essentially. So this was the kind of the post-imperial social and political structure of um, of Europe. So it's not something which is a global phenomenon. Um, when you talk about feudalism, you know, so anyway, this is a small point, but just to clarify that often feudalism is kind of becomes a synonym for rural backwardness around the world. When strictly speaking, as a social and economic structure, it's something which is um, confined essentially to Europe. Yeah. yeah. No, I think uh, good good qualification. Um, the so I, I yeah I think I think we can all sort of vaguely agree that there's something to um, to Morozov's account or some summary of the economic logic from the Marxist point of view, but he he also tries to summarize again pretty uh, compressed uh, account the non-Marxist um, approach to feudalism and he says that they they tended to, to understand feud or have tended to understand feudalism not as a backward mode of production but as a backward socio-political system marked by bouts of you know, arbitrary violence and ties of personal dependence and allegiance and this is all justified on on cultural or religious grounds what did you guys make of his sort of summary of non-marxist approaches to feudalism it was good i mean i thought you know it's a useful it's a useful kind of um it's a useful distinction that um i mean it's not i don't know the hold so much now you know but certainly kind of in um a mongoli kind of um political economy among liberal thinkers and among um kind of very modern you know the kind of founding fathers of modern sociology that um that is the way feudalism is understood its problem is that of um the way in which it kind of mistreats people and doesn't grant people um universal rights i would say i mean I, you know i mean obviously this was also that the bourgeois critique of feudalism was assimilated into marxism as well right and i mean it obviously recurs throughout many kind of marxist um discussions political discussions of feudal backwardness it obviously encompasses um a political critique as well as the economic critique. So it's not something that's restricted to non-Marxists. I mean, mar many Marxists were happy to endorse mm. the um, the critique of the political critique of feudalism, and to see, um, you know, and famously to see the bourgeois revolutions as progressive from that point of view. No, and and I think that's absolutely right. And there's also, I, I don't think the at a descriptive level, what the non-Marxist understanding of feudalism is and the transition to capitalism um, aren't at a descriptive level, something that you would want to dispense with, right? So the importance of law under capitalism is essential. And I think Marx has obviously recognized that um, the arbitrariness of, of feudalism um, is, I guess, is, is a factor that we can all agree that that, that is, that is a, a feature. Um, but um, it's interesting that Morozov notes, I think very correctly, is that um, for classic liberals, of course, capitalism corroded by politics is always on the verge of lapsing back into feudalism. So that there, I think, is a really important kind of analytical distinction between kind of liberal accounts and Marxist accounts. For liberals, um, you know, there's always the role of politics. Politics is always somehow a tainted um, element which interferes in the pure running of the 
of of the economy, right? Of the of the market, um, and which feudalism, you know, feudalism is chastised as um, an illegitimate political intrusion into the functioning of the economy effectively and that there's always this risk of feudalism kind of coming back um of of you know state uh, illegitimate state intervention um in the market so so just yeah just just to uh, to pose a follow up on that so it's is is your suggestion there that so for liberals you can have a movement back because it's a political um system you can have a movement back from capitalism to feudalism but for marxists you can't or like so my well, question is yeah i think that i think is that like, is what are the condition yeah go on well i think i think it's just more analytically that um you know for, for liberals there's a hard separation um in reality as well as in um in their minds between economy and politics right and the marxist tradition in theory or at its best is able to integrate both of these and to understand that they work together that you know it's not state versus market that the state works with the market and vice versa um that the role that power is important and so on um and so when you when you get a situation in which you're trying to kind of maintain them um separate like in in your head and also believe that in reality they should always be separate that there should be no um you know illegitimate state intervention in the functioning of the economy um you end up being surprised or kind of unable to really understand what is going on when you have things like um you know whatever the bailouts of 2008 and therefore then you have to end up reaching for some explanation like actually this is feudalism right um that yeah. that this is a, this extraneous element and i think the whole just as a kind of um summing up of the whole article uh, article and argument that morozov makes um is about you know how to understand those things which we would understand as extraneous to the economy right those political factors are they things yeah. that are part of capitalism or are they kind of you know <laughs> unjust or, or or you know somehow up from a part of the outside outside and then not part of the system yeah no i think that comes through in the article what that that question is absolutely central but i did want to pose this follow-up then because i hadn't been thinking about this until you you were saying it but from a kind of a a classical Marxist point of view, to go back to feudalism, you would need the destruction of technology to go back to a feudal era level of of um, of technology. Is that right? Is that being too vulgar? Well, technology isn't important, right? And under feudalism, there's no stimulus to um, you know increase productivity. Um, so I don't know if you'd need a destruction of 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 technology. I guess you, what you'd have is a is uh if you had a return to feudalism you just have a, a complete standstill in terms of um techno you know tech kind of technical innovation yeah, I mean, so, so i guess the argument angles... is that you'd have you have a standstill now and then and then you retain this level of technology but it's turned not towards increasing productivity but towards other ends namely kind of plunder um so for uh for friedrich engels has um he has a point i can't remember where now um, off the top of my head, but he he makes the point. You know, there is actually technological innovation under feudalism, and he makes um, he makes some points about, particularly to do with um, with military. To, you know, as you'd expect, given what a kind of um, politically fragmented and warlike system it was, that you do actually have technological innovation. Um, so I don't think you know, like I don't think destruction of technology or technological retardation would be the symptom. Right. It would be something more like um, it would be something more like um, a changed character of social legal relations. Right. So one thing being, you know, famously that the um, 
that uh, people were bound to the land as the Roman Empire kind of, um, as the great agricultural states of the Roman Empire, all the colonies, um, as they failed to kind of import more slaves, and this is obviously kind of uh, abbreviating um, and simplifying the thing, but they you know passed laws that bound Roman citizens to the agricultural estates in which um, they lived or worked. And so this was the beginning of what would become the kind of the feudal estate, the basic kind of unit of production focused around um, the Lord's Manor once uh, the Gothic kingdoms were established. So you'd have to see something on that scale, I think, in which you had a transformation of legal property relations um, that transformed the nature of work and substituted for the previous kind of way in which um, production was carried out. Uh, I think, you know, that would be much more important than, say, you know, kind of the availability of particular kind of um, devices or um, gadgets or machinery or what have you. To transition onto the next session of the discussion, which is the transition to capitalism, because um, this obviously is a key aspect of, you, you know, <clears throat> the feudal, any any uh, account of society that says we're in a feudal um, situation at the moment has to have some attention given to how we'd left this uh, this situation previously and what that what that means. Um, and so I think the in Murazov's account the um, Marxist approach here. We we outlined that economic logic of feudalism, um, in in contradistinction to the kind of non-Marxist idea that feudalism was a backward socio-political system. Um, from Marxist, this the key kind of transition from capitalism from feudalism to capitalism is that instead of having an economic logic based on dispossession or expropriation, um, instead you have one based on exploitation. So this classic kind of Marxist account of capitalism is centered on this, as we've talked about before uh, in this um, discussion, fair exchanges, no robbery, this kind of formally equal exchange of, you know, labor power for a wage by by free agents. But the Marxist account also has this kind of maybe problematic um, middle period where um, Marx des describes this as, cap as primitive accumulation, which is to say that the even on the Marxist account, there is a period uh, in which capital accumulation is uh, famously grounded in violent expropriation rather than exploitation, i.e. taking stuff rather than that uh, free and fair exchange. So Morozov in this connection discusses David Harvey's influential recent idea of uh, accumulation by dispossession as an account of how um, capitalism works today, which seems rather to take us back to primitive accumulation times. So what do we sort of what do we make of this this um kind of idea that one of the most important theoretical foundations of the techno feudalist thesis is the centrality of primitive accumulation to the origins and subsequent development of capitalism. Yeah, well, I think I this is where really Harvey David Harvey really proves the kind of the notwithstanding, you know, his kind of technical mastery of um Marxist political economy, his attempt to kind of elaborate it or solidify it um, really indicates his underlying theoretical weakness. So the idea of accumulation by dispossession, or the idea of, uh, we you know, which is kind of to say that the 
essentially that primitive accumulation is an ongoing process, you know, is um, I think it's tremendously pernicious um, and it has kind of um, political upshots as well um, beyond the kind of theoretical incoherence. I mean, can you elaborate so for us, prim- like give us some examples of what yeah, this looks so like? As, yeah. Well, it's good that you asked Alex, because actually I was just about to do that. So uh, Marx, I mean, he presents the idea of primitive accumulation famously at the end of um the first volume of Capital. And the point he, you know, he, um, after presenting the logical account of capital accumulation um, prior to that, he kind of accounts for its historical origins and talks about how it emerges through the colonial conquest of the Americas, the influx of gold and silver into Europe, um, the extension of slavery, and, you know, um, famously or infamously, the expropriation of um of the rural landed population uh, in England, which um established the basis for what would become eventually the urban proletariat with the rise of industrialism. And he calls this the primitive accumulation, but he took the phrase from the political economists of his own time, who had a different account of the origins of capitalism. Anyway, so you know, but the point is that Marx presents this very much as the origin. So it's the proto, you know, the very early kind of proto form of capitalism. He doesn't see it as something which defines the ongoing, once industrial capitalism is sufficiently concentrated that it um, exists of its own accord and is created through the spontaneous kind of process of capital accumulation and exchange of capital for um, wage labor and so on. He doesn't take primitive accumulation as being meaningful um, or central to the way in which capitalism functions. So to introduce kind of, you know, to introduce the idea of accumulation by dispossession, as Harvey does, is to suggest that primitive accumulation is kind of a stage or something which carries on throughout capitalism's um, development and history. It's not just the kind of the pre-capitalist formation. Um, and I think that, you know, that confuses things a great deal, right? And it's to mistake, you know, so to see like, I don't know, say um, chattel slavery in Mauritania, um, to see that as kind of accumulation by dispossession, or to see, say, um, you know, when the kind of um, right-wing paramilitaries kind of clear out um, agriculturalists and peasants in Colombia in order to make way for palm oil plantations, to see that as accumulation by dispossession. I think that is to profoundly mischaracterize what modern capitalism is about. So these things happen, but they're not central to its functioning. And to suggest that they are is to, you know, to make a much more confused picture of what the problems, um, the core problems with capitalism are as well as to kind of misdirect our attention, I think, to what those core problems are, to confuse questions of core and periphery, and also implicitly, you know, to suggest that the problems, say, in, I don't know, palm oil cultivation in Colombia or something are problems of backwardness rather than problems of the way in which capitalism functions today. Um, And to suggest that, you know, what's needed is kind of more modernization and development. And, you know, so I think, the whole idea of accumulation by dispossession is a profoundly um, confusing element to introduce into your picture of capitalism if you know if you want to talk about it. And it's Tomorozov's credit that he identifies the fact, you know, that there is a concession to neo-feudalism in the Harveyite thesis, right? By bringing mm. accumulation by dispossession into it. Yeah, yeah and I think, I think just that's I, a very good point. 
And I just want to add something onto that with regard to David Harvey, who, of course, is very popular. I mean, within the context of uh, of the left and, you know, his lectures are widely listened to and, and so on. For him, it, this question of accumulation by dispossession was not just... Um, you know, as Marx would have it, something that kicked off capitalism, like that. this was this initial step um, that happened almost, you know, that accidentally led to the creation of capitalism, the transition from feudalism uh, to capitalism. Um, nor is it, as Phil has been uh, describing, something that kind of recurs throughout history, but it's something that is uh, central to neoliberalism, that a kind of accumulation by dispossession kind of comes back with a vengeance or um, becomes even more central to capitalism in this phase rather than uh, compared to the kind of the mid 20th century or kind of late 19th century or whatever. Um, so I think, you know, that's kind of, I don't know how, I, I'm, I'm interested, Phil, how you read that because his argument isn't just, hey, dispossession, accumulation by dispossession, this question of expropriation is really important throughout all of capitalism. Um, he's also, he says, no, it becomes more important now at this point in history, you know, or as of the 19th. Yeah. 70s, I mean, 80s. again, I suppose you could, I mean, if you wanted to, uh, at a I suppose generously, you could say it's indicative of, um, you know, of stagnation in terms of um, economic productivity and industrial expansion. Um, but even then, I think, I mean, it, you know, that would be perhaps even that would be, I think, too much of a concession and a stretch. I think, you know, the real the the case remains that once you have industrial capitalism, the question, you know, in terms of the political, at least, you know, the Marxist kind of critique, political economic critique of capitalism has to be addressed to industrial capitalism itself. So the elements that happen um, on the periphery where you have kind of um, the, uh, you know, the straightforward kind of application of political violence to achieve economic ends is obviously not, you know, like it's not an insignificant thing, not least for the people concerned, but it is not central to the questions of, um, you know, the, if you want a political economic critique of capitalism, you have to account for the core of it. And the way in which the Harveyite point has functioned has of course been to deflect from the problems of, um, or from the question of um, class contestation in the industrialized world, and to increasingly kind of um, make the critique of capitalism about um, the impoverishment or brutalization of um, kind of raw, you know, rural, indigenous yeah. or displaced people at the periphery, you know, which, like I say, I mean, it's not to minimize, um, it's not to minimize their oppression and suffering and to, you know, obviously they re need political redress, but it's not actually at the core of what the Marxist understanding of or critique of capitalism is. So, I, I mean, I think it also has, I mean, the, the appeal that it obviously has is because it carries this moral charge um, which uh, the the kind of a more pure, clean Marxian understanding lacks. I mean, it's deliberately anti-moralist. Right. Yeah. Um, and this says no. There's this illegitimate violence happening, right? Yes. And so it brings us onto the train of justice rather than um yes. a, being a question of freedom of transition out of this system, right? Of revolution, effectively. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, I mean, that's right. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, you know, to understand the appeal, there there is though one thing. So why don't you go ahead, George? Because I, I have a, a point about corn periphery, but um. George. Yeah, no, I, do. I think it's it <clears throat> it makes you think just more about the importance of exploitation, and this is definitely a phrase which has slipped off the. Um, I'm gonna say slipped off the cliff. That's not quite right. It's definitely not talked about as much as it was, and the actual like centrality of this to Marxist 
understandings of capitalism and the fact that it is, you know, as you guys were both saying, it's specifically not um, a moral critique. It's not it. Well, some philosophers have have argued at, at great length whether it is or it isn't. I think it 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 definitely isn't. It's not supposed to be a moral um, criticism. It's not saying you know this exploitation is bad. It's saying this is how this form of society reproduces itself, and this is the central relationship within it. Um, but yeah, I think that accounts for it. It's the moral appeal and the moral focus and the moral value um, behind this kind of focus on oppression and and uh, accumulation by dispossession but alex you had a um you had a, a core periphery point you are a man from the periphery to come in with the, yeah. the point for the peripherals well no i mean so morozov recognizes um and along similar lines of what phil was describing that this question of you know expropriation to put it to, to kind of sum it up because there's various different ways we can talk about it i've listed some of them already but you know dispossession plunder um expropriation primitive accumulation predation all these kind of things are kind of um, adjacent terms, right? But to kind of sum it up and say, you know, expropriation it, as opposed to exploitation, that expropriation is important in the periphery and ha always has been. And to a certain extent, and, you know, one of the kind of arguments that is kind of nested within this article is about how important that um, kind of unequal exchange with, um, you know, peripheral countries actually is to the functioning of capitalism. Um, so that in the core, you know, it is just kind of pure industrial capitalism, but out, you know, in the in, in the periphery, there's a lot of expropriation, which then gets funneled back to the north and so on, right? Um, but what Morozov hints at, at the very end of this, is an idea which, like, obviously, I'm going to say, you know, that I've already discussed in terms of uh, Brazilianization, but which is this idea that the features of the periphery are now you know, kind of increasingly present in the core. So the the argument there, and, and here Morozov um, provides a not an opening to to techno feudalism because you know he's pretty um, forthright in his rejection of it throughout, and it's very well argued through. But he opens this idea, opens up to this idea, not of a return to feudalism, but of in some sense a, a, a an important change in global capitalism, and that global and that change is would be precisely a greater role. And it's a question of uh, proportion. Um, it's a question of quantity, not of, of an absolute yes or no. Um, but that greater role for expropriation um, in um, in the kind of maintenance and reproduction of capitalism within the core, right? Which, which um, you know, the argument that over the 19th and 20th centuries, that wasn't the case. And so he does hint at this. I'm wondering what you guys um, make of that. So would you, would, I mean, are you trying to say that Brazilianization has some parallels with neo-feudalism in that it's a a kind of a, a taking of what's supposedly peripheral extraneous and it's you know they it, well no it no peripheral isn't extraneous things... sorry just a, a okay. correction but peripheral is not extraneous because i mean the periphery of capitalism is sent is is part of the whole system it's not something which is um i you know the core of capitalism doesn't function without the periphery right it's not like um you know you could have uh you know western europe cut off from the rest of the world and it would still continue to be wealthy you know that's so it's not extraneous but anyway okay um but yeah so the the idea would be that things which are um peripheral but not extraneous um come increasingly to define those things which were were called the interpenetration of opposites and all that sort of thing that would be the idea um, well yeah i mean just basically like these forms of expropriation which have been always central to the functioning of capitalism in the periphery in a way which is much more obvious than in the north right phil made reference you know clearing out peasants and you know to take their land to uh, 
put to do kind of uh, monocrop agriculture and whatever, some things like that, um, or even, you know, slum clearances and whatever else, right? Um, that the kind of more naked use of violence, which is a feature of, you know, life on the periphery, is increasingly becoming a feature of the core, which does not mean a return to feudalism, but more just it is a way of discussing uh, the stagnation of capitalism now, mm. such what that capitalism you, increasingly needs to rely on um, directly political means. And, and that's, that's you know, that's what the extent of the claim. Thinking of in, what are you thinking of in, you know, I mean, how does that happen in the core? You don't have like, um, you know, kind of... Uh, peasants being turned off of the off the land for you know mono you know kind of cash crop no, and, 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 and in a so, lot of the, so say, say the... sorry just mm. just just to be more concrete about this say you're um maybe like an academic living in say the southeast of england how is this kind of the how is the periphery making itself more more felt in your kind of sheltered kind of ivory tower sort of life just to take an example well forgive me i mean forgive me you know like i mean for speaking on behalf of the pmc because i know that is like what george likes to do but um particularly the self-hating pmc but you know um and it's true that i'm not a a rural laborer um but as far as i can tell there haven't been like um local militias deployed in order to um you know kind of extend the local cocaine crop or um, to you know set up a palm oil plantation um, in Kent. Anyway. Well, no, and, and and it's worth pointing out that in the more developed parts of the periphery, you know that is, that isn't even necessarily the kind of key picture of expropriation today either anymore, right? Um, you know, can't talk about no, but this I'm as asking you, know, okay, but like so, joking aside, you know, like if you're saying that we're seeing more of that kind of being transplanted, what are you thinking of? Well, okay, so to take the uh, an example which has been very widely discussed. And which Robert Brenner, you know, the kind of key thinker, I think, of the transition from capitalism, from feudalism to capitalism, discussed as escalating plunder, an, an, art, an article which Morozov makes reference to here, um, talking about the COVID bailouts, which is a direct um, politically political um, move to transfer wealth upwards from the populace at large to um, to the biggest asset holders, right? And that happened with the COVID bailout um, to a massive. Uh, degree and so the the point there isn't about some sort of primitive accumulation necessarily but it's more about you know plunder as 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 Brenner calls it um but basically it's that capitalism is increasingly dependent on the state increasingly dependent on forms of uh in some cases forms of rent but also just much more and I think I'm I'm kind of foreshadowing to maybe something that I think George wanted to come on to um but which is the role of the state Right, and that stagnant capitalism relies much more on the state, and that that reliance on the state and the re- reliance of on effectively ultimately on violence, even if it's like legitimate violence carried out by the state, um, is, was always a feature of life of capitalism on the periphery, and that's becoming increasingly a, a feature of capitalism. Yeah. that's the argument basically. It's a hard, you know. So I mean, it kind of it has an appeal. It's a hard one, I think, because. Um, you know, how far do you wish to go back? I mean, if you take, for instance, I mean, it was one of the kind of, um, you know, one of the mid 20th century, some mid 20th century German Marxists made this case about, um, you know, the German kind of economic, so-called economic miracle in the aftermath of the Second World War, um, which is, you know, taken as, which is, you know, in many ways, the kind of in high point of industrial capitalism in terms of economic growth and expansion and, you um, you know, the modernization of Germany and so on. Um, but they make the case it was only possible by virtue of um, fascism and war, 
right so the incorporation you know the fact that the um that the um kind of the rebelliousness of the proletariat in a very basic level not just in terms of its political defeat but just that it was so kind of um subdued and beaten in every conceivable sense by fascism occupation and war and so on that the ground was laid the social ground was laid for the for the um the so-called wirtschaftswunder so my point being that it's so, you know, it's very hard to know where to draw a line around such claims because you can take the high point of industrial capitalism in the 20th century and very clearly, ident- you know, at least plausibly identify a link with a um, profoundly important role for the use of state power mm-hmm. in laying the ground for it. Well, so that is so more not something which is just about today. Yeah, no, and I'm just briefly, this is kind of a thing that Morozov, like a kind of secondary point that Morozov wants to make in this article, which is that, you know, kind of Marxists uh, should, Orthodox Marxists should be a little bit more open, at least, and this is a kind of, I guess, a critique of of the kind of very pure Brenner thesis, right, that it's all purely economic and that all the political stuff is extraneous, to be a little bit more open in the vision to the role that the state plays in in capitalism. So you've mentioned Brenner a couple of times, Alex, just in terms of, uh, could you just give us a bit of a summary of his, what his um, general vibe is, what his the- his theory of transition yeah, is? Yeah, I mean, not to go into, into too much d- detail on it, but, um, you know, the, the kind of school of so-called political Marxism um, around him understood the transition of uh, from feudalism to capitalism as something that came about um, effectively by accident. And it's, you know, that the um that primitive accumulation played a role in, in kick i'm kind of repeating to a certain extent to the description that's already been made but you know that kicked off accumulation but that it is driven by its own um internal processes and that the force of competition drives uh innovation right and it's uh, and it's that innovation um the desire drive to cut costs innovation new technology um greater surplus value and so on and so and so the wheel turns right um not that that um story is without crisis of course it that is that is a, a something that you know is an important part of um the the process of capitalist development but um that these are things which are all very much internal to um to the functioning to the kind of economic functioning and which and and so the argument that Brenner is making is in contradistinction to um other arguments and you know um Morozov sets up Emmanuel Wallerstein as a sort of counter, as the sort of counter to that, uh, which is would be an argument where the political is much more present, and that the role of, for example, um, imperialism and the unequal exchange with the in the third world and all that becomes much more um, is much more kind of central to the way that capitalism functions. So you can basically see it as a, you know to put it in in kind of really kind of dumb simple terms, the kind of like the purists versus the ones who think that the story is a little bit messier. Mm, yeah, nice, uh, nice summary. Great. So just uh, a few more um, sort of general dis- discussions. I think it's worth probably just in wrapping up um, to a certain extent, bringing in Morozov's background and expertise a little bit. He's a you know prominent theorist of um, of technology. His book particularly uh, to save everything click here which outlines this idea of solutionism i think is just a brilliant um account of how essentially there's not just solving problems but the very formation of problems that those 
sorts of things that tech can can solve um a lot of you know interesting stuff that he's done um and so we definitely have to take seriously his analysis for example of um google what did we make of this and the centrality i guess of his claim that google is a commodity producer to his kind of skepticism towards the uh techno feudalist thesis yeah i mean i can't speak to the uh, you know or kind of critically assess his claims about the inner workings of um, Google. I mean, talking about necessarily the inner workings, but his you know interpretation of what it actually provides. Because I'm I don't I'm kind of uh, not so immersed in kind of how the technology actually works. But um, I think it's I think it's compelling. You know, it's compelling and it's very important the claim that he makes because what he's basically saying is that uh, you know the the techno feudal thesis rests on the idea that these new tech overlords, these new tech barons, are rentiers, right? That they're living off of uh, other people's labor. That they're li- not just living, off, sorry, yeah. they're not living off of other people's labor, but it's unearned income in the sense that they're not even exploiting workers directly, right? That they're that there's basically not really many workers doing work. Yeah. Um, they just own, you know, they have uh, either a kind of uh, monopoly, um, which are, they're able to extract monopoly rent or own um, patents, which they're able to, you know, make uh, make rent from without having to, you know, put labor to work and innovate and all the rest. Um, and there's that's certainly part of it, undoubtedly. And he also points to other kind of, again, the extraneous elements, for example, uh, the tight interlinking between Silicon Valley and the US state, um, both through kind of like lobbying and that kind of thing, um, but also also through its kind of links with the US security state and the what it provides to them and so on. But I it, but the the central point is that a lot a lot of kind of Google's business and this applies not just to Google is that, is that it actually um sells a commodity, right? So it's not just a rentier that it has people working, you know, creating the algorithm or whatever to do the web scraping job um you know kind of web crawling to index the whole internet um and that it then um gets people to use its search engine, uh, it collects people's data, and then it sells that data to advertisers. Now, we might say that's not very useful, right, in terms of um, not being, not producing lots of use values, right, things that we can, things that we we find useful on a kind of subjective level. Right. Um, search engines are useful. How are they not no, useful? Th- no, because, what, because what's sold is, of course, your data to advertisers. So, the fact that um, advertisers can pinpoint us and uh, target advertising, we might think that's not um, useful. Yeah, um, but it's sold off the back of the use value of the search engine, right? Yeah, yeah. No, that that's, that's true. Um, so, but, you know, that's something that could be provided freely without the um, without the extraction of data, right? So once you've built uh, Google, it could be free, right? Without without uh, without it it kind of um, absorbing all these masses of data of what you do on the internet. Um, so you, you know we might we might not like it, but there's lots of capitalism that we might say we don't, might not like, but it is still productive of new value. It produces a, a, a commodity. Um, now go, Google, and this is part I guess part of Morozov's argument is that it's able to suck up that value and that this is a, a kind of a classic Marxist point that um where um that basically where the, the the value that's extracted right the kind of the money that capitalists make doesn't always come from where they produced it right so it might be that something else uh, you know mining for example is really productive but if someone selling something way down the line is able to make 
very large, much larger profits off of something. It doesn't mean that that's where it was produced. So he gives this example of an automated car wash, right? So the automated car wash, which has no workers, uh, might make loads of money. Now you might say, well, there, where's the, the exploitation of labor that happens? Where's, uh, where's the surplus value being created? And the point there is that it doesn't need to be created right there. It's that, you know, the surplus value is in the building of the machines, for example, um, which and the making of the brushes and the soaps and all the rest that things that a car wash does, as well as the algorithm that drives and whatever else. Um, It just so happens that the car wash is able to, you know, at that kind of point in production, able to absorb all that value. So, you know, a similar argument, I guess, is applied to, uh, to Google. Anyway, to conclude, the point is that they still are capitalists. They still are traditional capitalists for all that there might be other rent seeking going on. And that rather undermines the central uh, conceit of the neo-feudal thesis that basically they've all become rentiers. But it also kind of gives you a, <clears throat> an understanding of why it might be plausible at the same time, because the biggest kind of most uh, high profile capitalist firms don't seem to produce anything. It's not immediately obvious what the um, the kind of how how exploitation works, you know, where their factories are that are churning out all of these products. And, you know, it does it does give the appearance that things have, have changed qualitatively. But just a couple of um, kind of questions to put. But, but it's, sorry, just cool. in, in yeah. tan- but that, I mean, that gets to a, a, a kind of different question. I think it's almost like a kind of category area when people talk about these things, because the production of intangibles doesn't mean that it's not capitalist production. Right. And I think that's, that's important. Of course, if it's a song that you own the rights to, and that then gets played a million times over like happy birthday. And every time someone sings that you earn money, okay, that's pure rent seeking, but you might be pr- providing as Morozov argues about Spotify, uh, a product you're offering. And the product isn't just the songs, um, which you've bought the licenses to or whatever you, um, is, is that you're, uh, you know, you're producing this kind of curated content experience. Okay. We might think that's bullshit, whatever, but the point is that you're actually, you are still um, producing and selling a product. It just happens to be intangible. And that isn't something, of course, that's something um, increasingly a feature of contemporary capitalism, but it's not something that's entirely new, right? Um, you know, for-profit education, that sells something that's intangible, but it doesn't make it any less of a capitalist enterprise. So yeah, well, um, yeah, well, well put. I think that's a good point. Um, but just to kind of, you know, politically, politically, is the conclusion here that techno-feudalist or neo-feudalist accounts, um, you know, those based in mechanisms of accumulation by disposition, by dispossession, as Harvey put it, or Veblen's predation or cognitive rent, extraction of behavioral surplus, all these um, theorists Morozov discusses, but we don't really have time, you know, to get into, um, is the basic political conclusion that they're all essentially defending the status quo to a greater or lesser extent because they occlude exploitation as the central mechanism of capitalism. So they distract us from where the action is and and put and send us off in uh, opposite directions to where uh, the real reproduction of capitalism is occurring. I don't know about status quo, um, but they're in some sense, yeah, don't get to the centrality of, of exploitation. I think in, and this is where the diversity of perspectives that use the neo-feudal thesis comes in and is important because they might be pointing in different directions. So, you know, Varoufakis, you know, wants some sort of reform of capitalism to a more productive, uh, productive form, you know, in this critiques of quantitative easing, for example, and, and the inequality that uh, comes out of this stagnant form of capitalism. But, you know, I think there is certainly a um, an occlusion um, of the central uh, component of exploitation there. 
spy focus. So, you know, I, I think we can be critical, for example, of the financialization of the economy um, while still, while not um, falling into the trap of being kind of anti-finance capital at the, at, and uh, and hold up kind of industrial capital as, a, as, a, as an alternative. Because, of course, as we know, they're entirely interlinked. So it's not, it's not so um, simple as to say, well, you know, finance capital, bad, industrial capital, Good. Not to mention that that that, it, that often like ends up leading to a kind of anti-Semitic uh, sort of terrain. Um, but um, so you know, I think I, I don't know if they're defenders of the status quo, but I um, agree that at least from a yeah from a classic Marxist perspective, that it, it does sort of um, occlude the central question of exploitation and um, turn our eyes to. Um, you know these extraneous elements that if only they were gotten rid of, we might have a good capitalism. The best side of of the neo feudal thesis, to kind of give it its credit, is that it is an attempt to grapple with stagnation and rentierism today, which are very real. I just think that it's misguided in trying to put this to try to understand it through the lens of feudalism, um, because so much of what's happening is a feature of capitalism and always has been. Um, but, you know, maybe it's things that are only now becoming major factors in the core of capitalism or things that are becoming more present where they were previously less present. And I think, it, you know, um, I don't think we need that much conceptual innovation in terms of relying on neo-feudalism to try to understand mm. what is going on in our world today. Phil, are the, the old ideas still the the right ones? Yeah, up to a point. I mean, I think Alex is, um, I mean, I'm not sure I agree fully with, I think um, Alex is was a bit overwrought, perhaps, in the way he put it. But I, um, yeah, what did you want to say? Well, no, no, I'm, I'm <laughs> saying elaborate, you know, if you if you disagree. <laughs> overwrought. Don't be so overwrought, Alex. <laughs> Come on. I guess, I mean, um, you know, it doesn't, de- the, the issue remains, I think, that if you, you have these kinds of, uh, you know, the capital wage labor relationship still seems to me to be um, the core one for understand. If you know, if you want to understand capitalism, it seems you know, um, I'm sufficient of a of a classical Marxist to think you know that's the central one to understand. Um, but it still leaves us with the problem that you have. Um, you know, part of the reason that you have so much focus on all of these other kinds of questions and um, trends and phenomena of modern day capitalism is that there is no basic contestation over the social surplus, or at least, you know, there hasn't been with possibly, you know, the with the possible exception of the recent uptick in um, in strikes in the industrialized economies of uh, the US and Western Europe. Um even then, I mean, you know, it's starting from an extraordinarily low base, so you don't want to overstate that. Um, but, you know, without – so it seems to me, you know, that has to be also factored in. Yeah. Um, I I don't want to abuse my position as sort of the, the host of this, but I wanted to throw my my two cents um, in there. I think, you know, why this is an, an interesting piece to to read and an important topic to discuss is that it seems to kind of get to the central question of whether capitalism can work without the things usually taken to be extraneous to it. And I think the general consensus on the left seems at this point to be that it that it can't, that exploitation does need to be supplemented by an analysis of oppression and domination 
um, you know, bringing in concepts of unfree labor, racial and gender domination, unpriced use of energy, and all these kind of ideas of <clears throat> kind of extra economic extraction at the periphery, enabling straightforwardly economic extraction in the core. That kind of, you know, it's it's kind of a symptom of a wider um, kind of eclipse of of um, exploitation as a central um concept in that kind of wage labor relation becoming kind of less and less um kind of core to, to the left's understanding of, of capitalism but anyway i don't think we you know didn't finish the discussion on any of these you know things really definitively um in this in this this afternoon um but we do have the reading club to continue to discuss these things um and we will shortly be doing um a book on ai which is uh you know, very relevant in this connection and also finishing the year discussing the precariat, discussing new forms of class struggle without class and, you know, continuing, I think, probably into next year. Well, I'm sure into next year, a lot of these questions of class, the changing nature of capitalism, all the all the good shit. So thanks for being with us, listeners. Alex, anything to, to, to add? Because you're, well, you're normally the host. You normally conclude this. <laughs> I don't know how to, to finish the conversation. I just say goodbye. Yeah, yeah, you struggled with hello, so goodbye my own be a little bit difficult. Well, the, um, the start and the end of something is always the most difficult bit, right? The transitions. Yeah. But that's right. I think, you know, as as much as we might be, you know, pretty skeptical of the neo-feudal thesis and all the feudal talk, uh, the stuff that it tries to describe are stuff that needs to be analyzed. And so we're going to continue doing that. If you would like to join us in the reading club, um, please do so. It's patreon.com slash bungacast. It's $10 a month. Um, if you um, only, if you're not interested in that, but aren't a member of uh, or subscriber to Bungacast yet, for $5 a month, you get two original episodes a month, at least um, featuring extended interviews, original uh, discussions, analyses of current events and uh, our ongoing critical dialogues with our patrons, which we uh, greatly enjoy doing every month um so we'd love to see you over there um and uh regardless uh if you have enjoyed this drop us a review uh give us even five stars uh if you would like um that would be great and we will be back soon with more and as george said these uh, discussions will be uh, continuing well beyond just the 2022 reading club um and the reading club itself it's something that we will continue doing here on bunga cast we will see you next week catch you later bye-bye <laughs>